Yeah, Acts uh, 15 again today. Uh, we'll be finishing up the chapter, Lord willing. Acts 15:36 through 41. Let's pray. Our Father, you have dealt bountifully with your servants. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Will you yet again dispense richly from your storehouses that we may hear and know and live and keep your word? Would you remove the dimness from our eyes and shine the light of your lamp on our path that we may walk humbly with you? Will you move us to awe and to wonder at your own character, the works of your hands, so that we would know in whom is our strength for our sojourn? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. Acts fifteen thirty six through 41. Remember, this is after the Jerusalem Council. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch once again. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Amen. This is God's word. We do some scripture memory with our kids. The current verse is one we all know well, I think. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I have questions about that verse. What about disease and disaster? All things according to good. Okay, I think I have a a handle on God's sovereignty with those things. What about my failures? Or the failures of the church? Those embarrassing things that happen. Is that good? Those things are a little bit harder for me to accept. That those are part of the good. So, what is good in that verse? I have uh, darlings. You know, when you're writing a, a sermon, for example, uh, you have many things that you must cut out. And many of those things are painful to cut out, but you have to be ruthless. You have your, your darlings and your, your things that you love, but you have to cut them out. We have darlings in our, in our understanding of what the church should be like. And sometimes reality doesn't match those expectations or how our family should look or about how our own person and our own personality should be. We have our, our darlings, even biblically informed darlings that, that just 
somehow we fall short. When these darlings are disrupted, do all things really work together for good? Here on the heels of one of the greatest victories in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council, the defeat of, of, of legalism in the church, we have one of what at first glance appears to be one of the greatest embarrassments in the book of Acts. And by the end, I hope you will see, even this tragic conflict works out for the good. It's a resounding victory, in fact, for King Jesus and for the building of his church. And I hope you'll see that even even you, even your embarrassments and tragedies and failures, even your own disrupted darlings, uh, do, in fact, work together for good. I have three main headings this morning. We have the context of the conflict, the substance of the conflict, and the result of the conflict. So first, the context of the conflict, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So you remember they've gone on their first missionary journey through Cyprus up into to, uh, Asia Minor and back down and they're back down in Antioch now. And the text says that they had been there for some days. <coughs> um, so they had gone down to Jerusalem, you recall, for the Jerusalem Council, and they went back to Antioch, and they were living and teaching in Antioch. And, and some have speculated maybe they were there over the winter. Um, that Between Antioch and Asia Minor, where they had been ministering, there's a mountain range, the Taurus Mountains. And actually, the tallest peaks are roughly about the height of, of our peaks in Colorado, just shy of 14,000 feet. Um, one difference, the the hometown of, of Paul, which would have been on the route of Tarsus, was at 82 feet. So that's quite a difference compared to where we live, right, between the peaks of those mountains. So it's a, it's a serious pass. So maybe they were waiting for the passes to open. We don't know. But they were there for some days. And Paul suggests, let's go and see these churches that we planted. He says, let's see how they are. And that, that verb there, see how they are, is actually the verb form of a word we learned last time, not when Dell was here, but the week before, uh, the verb form of episkopos. which you remember is the word we, we would translate oversight. So when he's saying, let's go see how they are, really he's saying, let's go on an overseeing, visitate, let's go on visitation. Remember, they had gone through and evangelized and then they went back through and set up elders in every town. So it, they're wondering, how are they doing? Are they holding firm? Are, are they believing the true gospel? How are the saints amid what, what was really persecution when they themselves were in those towns? Also, the Jerusalem councils dated to about 48 A.D., um, the book of Galatians is usually dated 48, 49 A.D. So somewhere in the middle of all that, Paul had written a book to the Galatian churches, which are the very same churches in Asia Minor that he wants to go see. So he's wondering, have these Galatian churches warded off this threat that I wrote to them about? 
Have they warded off the danger of Judaizing and of legalism and salvation by works? So this is not just a mission to kind of, you know, get together and have coffee with the churches of Derby and Leicester. This is an oversight mission, a shepherding mission. Paul is very concerned always with the churches. He doesn't just leave them to their own devices. He cares about, you know, not just getting notches in his belt, evangelism, but he cares about discipleship, oversight, and care. A good example of this is 1 Thessalonians 3, um, 6 through 10, um, where he, Paul, Paul uh, re, uh, recounts, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So, so Paul is always very concerned about the oversight of the church, of caring. He even calls it anxiety sometimes, which I think is a holy anxiety. There's a difference between that and, and unnecessary worry. But a real care, a fatherly care for these people. Now notice here in verse 36 who it is that's being talked about. Uh, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are the dream team in terms of pastoral evangelism. And these two men have this bond forged in fire. They've known each other at this point for well over a decade. They've gone through so much together, and yet their bond in this passage is severed by what's called a sharp disagreement. Calvin put it well. He said the society of Paul and Barnabas was consecrated by the heavenly oracle. Remember, they they were set aside, both of them, by the Holy Spirit for the mission. It was consecrated by the heavenly oracle. They had long time labored, being of one mind under this yoke, whereunto the Lord had tied them, and had by many experiences felt the excellent favor of God. Yea, that wonderful success mentioned heretofore by Luke was manifest blessing of God. So these two men had been through so much together. Remember when Paul was converted and he went to Jerusalem and everybody was afraid of him because he was Saul the persecutor. Who was it that brought Paul to the apostles? It was Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, always there to encourage. And when Barnabas went to Antioch, who did Barnabas go to fetch from Tarsus to help him in the work at Antioch? It was Paul. The two of them were called together by the Holy Spirit to the work of missions. They had been on travels together thousands of miles by foot, by sea. They'd done ministry. They'd been mistreated together, cast out of the city by their fellow Jews. Paul was stoned in the presence of Barnabas. Together they debated against the circumcision party. They, they together witnessed at the Jerusalem council. And they were ministering together in Antioch. So of all the people to get into a spat, to separate over something so seemingly insignificant, 
This should stand as a warning to all of us. Calvin says again, seeing that a light occasion did separate them, who had long time amid so great trials retained unity holily, how easily may Satan cause those to be divided who have either none or at least a cold desire to foster peace? Do we have a hot desire to foster peace? What are we willing to endure, to yield, to forgive? Division is one of the world's greatest tragedies, especially in the church. And I think petty squabbles over, over, over foolish things, over what Dr. Sproul would call peccadillos. <laughs> Those are one of the devil's favorite tools. We consider the Jerusalem Council, how they were all united together around this one doctrine, and now Paul and Barnabas are squabbling over whether or not to bring Mark. So it is a warning to us. So a few biblical reminders, a few passages to help us keep this in mind. The importance of vigilance in keeping the peace, that if it can happen to them, it can certainly happen to us. Romans 12, 16-21 Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil for evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Similarly, we're reminded in Colossians 3, 12 through 15, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Yet another, Second Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to pe- teach patiently enduring evil. Finally, we're reminded from Proverbs 26:21, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. So this stands as a great warning to us initially, that if Paul and Barnabas, of all people, some of the greatest pastor evangelists in the history of the church, can fall into conflict, how vigilant we must be. How, how hot in pursuit of peace we ourselves must be. Now our second heading, we had the context of the conflict. Now the substance of the conflict, verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. This Mark, John Mark, in the Bible, is an important figure. He's the son of a woman named Mary. And if you remember Peter's escape from prison by the angel, and he went and knocked on the door, and the, and the girl thought it was a, an angel, and she ran away instead of opening the door. That was Mary's house. That was John Mark's mother's house. So her, it seems her house was a, something of a hub in Jerusalem for the preaching of the gospel, for the fellowship and, and uh, gathering of the saints. Also, if uh, in Colossians 4, we have a mention of a Mark who is the covenant uh, cousin of Barnabas. And presumably this is the same Mark. So this Mark, who, whom Barnabas wanted to bring and Paul did not, is Bar- uh, Barnabas' cousin. And uh, also, we, it's a speculation, but in the book of Mark, um, there's a, when, when Jesus is arrested, um, there's a young man who flees naked from the scene. Um, and it, it says at that point in the context that everyone left Jesus. And then there's this, this strange detail about this young man who has this robe on, and as he flees, they try to grab, and he runs away naked. And who would know that but maybe the author? So they speculate that uh, that was also Mark. Now, if we remember back, Acts 13.13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is on uh, Cyprus, and came to Perga and Pamphylia, which is in uh, southern uh, Asia Minor. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, in this passage, Luke doesn't comment on Mark's uh, motives, whether it's good or bad. He just It's just a matter of fact. Mark left. John, John Mark left and went back to Jerusalem. We don't know why. There's been much speculation as to why he might have left. Um, he was a young man, perhaps immaturity, perhaps fear, per, perhaps distraction with er, earthly concerns. Whatever the case may be, Paul clearly does not approve of Mark's reason for leaving the mission. Barnabas, on the other hand, is willing to forgive, willing to bring Mark along. The text says that a sharp disagreement arose about this issue between Paul and Barnabas. This word sharp disagreement is uh, paroxysmos. The word has a positive meaning. We see in um, Hebrews 10:24, and let us consider how to stir up. That is the word stir up. Let us continue, uh, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, Mounts the dictionary from from Mounts says that this word has a, a negative connotation as well, which means a sharp fit of anger or sharp contention, or angry dispute. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word a couple of times about God. Deuteronomy 29:28, And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and, and great wrath. That's the word, great wrath. And cast them into another land as they are this day. And Jeremiah 32, 37 Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. There again is the word. Great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. 
So safe to say this argument is not just a, a, a mere collegial discussion. This, they got hot, to use our Carmen parlance. They were angry with each other. This was a serious debate, a sharp disagreement. It's tempting to kind of assign blame. Who's at fault here? Um, and really, the truth is, either person could have yielded to the other, I think, in this case. Uh, we see the difference, maybe, between their personalities. Paul, very driven, very one-track mind. Barnabas, ever the encourager, son of encouragement, always gracious, willing to accept Paul, even when everyone else was afraid of him. We also see, quite possibly, that blood is thicker than water. If... if, if <laughs> If uh, Mark was Barnabas's cousin, um, that makes sense. It's interesting, Luke here, the way he conveys the message and, and the way he tells us about the response of the church seems to at least support Paul that he's not wrong in what he says. In, in verse 38, listen to the description of, of Mark's departure. Uh, Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So there it's clear that at least we know Mark was certainly in the wrong. He should have gone with them to the work. And even the church at Antioch, it says in verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Um, So at the very least, they send Paul and Silas on their way, just as they did with Paul and Barnabas. So this is a serious fight, a sharp disagreement between two men with, with a profound bond over something so seemingly insignificant that these two men parted ways. Now there, there's the old line, let's agree to disagree. I have always, always hated that line. That's so silly. So often, and especially in our day and age, a relativistic day and age, let's just let everyone believe what they want. Let's just agree to disagree. Let's coexist. But it's true that not every disagreement is a heresy trial. This question is not over doctrine. Contrast this issue with the one that they were dealing with just verses before in the Jerusalem Council, with it, which is a heresy trial, which is a question of how can we be saved? Do we have to be circumcised to be saved? Do we have to fulfill the works of the law to be saved? That is a heresy trial, and there can be no disagreement, and there was no disagreement. They had unanimity on that. But this is just a pragmatic and personal dispute over how will we execute this ministry. And so sometimes I think when we're, we're in a rowboat and we're, we're both paddling and we, we think we have the same destination, but we're both paddling different directions and we're spinning around in the middle of the lake, sometimes it actually advances the cause of the gospel and unity to part ways. Neither side in this instance is a heretic. And unity is actually served by their separation. Not only is unity served, but the gospel is uh, served. And here we have our third heading is the result of the conflict. In 
It is a tragedy. I think the devil stuck his fingers in in the business of the church as he does. And and somehow it was involved in this tragedy. We see that pattern in Acts over and over again. That's why I think that, because the pattern in Acts is the, the devil attacks and Christ's church triumphs resoundingly over and over again. That pattern keeps happening. This is yet another instance of that. So the devil managed to, to sever this beautiful bond, and it's a tragedy. It's not good that they parted ways. We lament the, the tragedy. But is it a defeat? Is this really an embarrassment? Did King Jesus really take a hit? That he, took, he lost one battle, but it's not the loss of the war. Jesus is not afraid, like we are, to dispense with our darlings. Mike Tyson said, everybody has plans until they get hit for the first time. Similarly, tributed to Eisenhower, who knows, in preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. The point being, clinging to our darlings, our, our preconceived notions of how things should be, will get you killed, get you beat up. But there is one for whom plans always unfold according to plan. All things work together for good. And he defines good. If I were boss, praise the Lord, I'm not, I would keep the dream team together. I would keep Paul and Barnabas together. Why would you split them up? They're so effective together. Or, or if I were boss, I, I would have Kelly not be busy anymore. Right? Or, or a Trinity Reformed Church be filled with little ones. Reformed churches established in rural places. Families and marriages not disrupted by, by sin. My own sinful affections would be subdued if I were boss. You know, whatever the case may be. These are all good things, I think. Biblical desires. But Jesus has his own plan. He has his own definition of good. His ways are not my ways, and his thoughts are not my thoughts. They're higher. It's a tragedy. Satan's afflictions. Uh, Jesus takes those. And he... He body slams them and he advances his ministry. Verse 39, um, we read of the, the parting of ways. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now... We go from one dream team to two dream teams. Double the coverage, expanding, multiplying. You know, Paul and Barnabas can sip drinks together in glory. For now, there's a mission to be accomplished, right? They're needed on separate fronts. Paul and Silas become one of the most formidable, perhaps even more formidable pastor evangelist teams than, than, than Barnabas and Paul. 
They go together on the second uh, missionary journey. You, you remember the famous story of the, the jail hymn sing Paul and Barnabas. I mean Paul and Silas. Um, Silas helped Paul write First Corinthians. As to Barnabas, we don't know a lot about what happened to him after this or his subsequent ministry. We know he continued to labor in the gospel. Paul mentions him in a bit of an odd context in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 6 and 7. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, uh, who serves as as a soldier at his own expense? Um, So clearly Paul still at this point sees Barnabas as a co-laborer, even though they're separate. And similarly in Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So it seems that Paul still has a very high view of Barnabas, and it seems that even Mark may be with Paul at this present juncture when he writes Colossians. And we haven't talked about Mark very much yet. We could step into Mark's shoes for a moment. This is a, a young man who walked with Jesus, we believe. Um, he, he got to be a part of the, the apostolic missionary band, um, and yet he failed. Think about here, we, I have the, the story of um, possibly Mark running away in Mark 14, 48 through 52. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. That is, his disciples left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's potential failure number one for Mark. You can imagine failing the Lord Jesus Christ personally. And then now to abandon his calling, the, the word that this, this text uses for when he left is apostatize. That doesn't mean he apostatized the faith, but he left his calling. He abandoned his calling. Calvin puts a sharp point on it. He says uh, he had given himself over to serve Christ upon this condition that he should be free no longer. It was no more lawful for him to break his promise made in his, in this behalf than it is for a husband to leave his wife or for a son to forsake his father. Neither does infirmity excuse his unfaithfulness, whereby the holiness of the calling was violated. So first he runs away, possibly from Jesus, then he violates his calling, abandons the mission field. And now to come back and to desire restoration and to want to go again with them and to to have a second chance and to have that refused by Paul. For me, it's those personal shortcomings and failures that are the hardest to fit into that all things work together for good paradigm. Surely those are just purposeless failures. They only serve to detract from the mission of Christ, which is silly, as if Christ needed my excellence to accomplish his mission. As if Jesus can redeem everyone else's sins, but not mine. I mean, self-pity is so arrogant. It's the sin I'm prone to. 
So we don't believe that our failures preclude us from future usefulness to Christ. Listen to a little bit of of the way Mark was redeemed as the New Testament story continues. 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul writes, Only Luke is with me. He's writing from prison. Um, Get Mark and bring him with you because he is useful to me in the ministry. I, I just, thinking experientially for a moment, to think having been rejected by Paul and now to have that spoken of him, he is useful to me in ministry. Then Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and Aristarchus, Aristarchus Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Mark is a fellow worker. And then Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes in First uh, Peter 5.13, The church in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings, as does my son, Mark. Peter sees Mark as his spiritual son. And, and if you've looked at the, the, the background of the Gospel of Mark at all, you know that most scholars would agree that the Gospel of Mark is Peter's Gospel as told through Mark. Mark, who was rejected by the Apostle Paul, wrote one of our Gospels on behalf of Peter. So we know all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What, what should we extract, if anything, from that list of all things? You know, disease, family strife, uh, personal sins and failures, Petty squabbles, church conflict, embarrassments, disappointments, lost darlings, all does not fall under the category of all things. This isn't going according to plan. Whose plan? How shall we define good? Jesus defines the good the ultimate good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not my purpose, his purpose. In his purpose, there's great good. So this is why Paul can go on to say in Romans 8, and I'll conclude with this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, personal failures or petty squabbles? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.